Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And as you find your way there, um, let me alert you to just a couple of things that matter this morning for us as a church. One is you receive a little green card. It says give one. And this involves, uh, we have a sub, kind of a sub-crisis going on in our children's ministry. We're not, we're not talking sandwiches. We're talking substitute teachers. And uh, they are asking that you might be willing to give one, just one Sunday of service this semester. And that way, as colds and such sweep through the church, we're able to have the healthy teachers that we need in our classes. So just once, you might be asked to serve just once. And there's a way for you to put your name and contact information on that little green card. Leave it at the children's check-in, which is right near the front doors in the lobby. So uh, if you could consider doing that, that will be a great blessing to our kids and our families. Also tonight, we're gathering at 6 in this room for uh, our prayer gathering, our monthly prayer gathering. We will be praying for marriages tonight. Uh, let me encourage you. This, this, this is one of the areas where our adversary afflicts the most suffering in our church, is in difficult places in marriages. And there are people who need you to be praying for them. And if they are willing tonight to come and seek prayer, I hope you'll come and stand with them in that. So as part of our, our, our serving one another as a body, tonight, 6 o'clock in this room, we want to play, pray for marriages. And if your marriage is in a hard place, you are welcome to come. And we'll have a chance to, you, for you to be prayed for um, personally by a number of people in a small group in our church but you can just come and if that's a little bit over the top for you you can come and just sit and absorb the prayers that are being offered by the church family in your presence either way will be a blessing to you so tonight at six if you're a member of our church at the close of that time we do have a church discipline matter where we have one of our members who has fallen into sin and you will be called to pray and pursue them in love tonight um, as we seek to rescue them from the sin that they've fallen into. So again, if you're a member, this is of the utmost importance that you're with us tonight for, for these important matters. Um, so, Matthew chapter 7, or 27 rather, let's, let's pray together if you would. Father, have mercy on us now. Help us love Jesus more because of what we're about to see. Lord, I, I would ask that for each of us, that we would love Jesus more because we're about what we're about to see and hear of our Savior. And we do ask this in his name. Amen. All right, we are, as Daniel mentioned, continuing our Lenten series on the seven last words of Jesus, the seven sayings that he gave from the cross and on his way to the cross, uh, that route is called um, the Via Dolorosa, the, the way of sorrows. Another way to render that is simply the painful way. And on his way to the cross, uh, Jesus has been betrayed and denied and mocked and deserted. He has been whipped and beaten and half dead already. He was made to carry his own cross and now at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning, what they call the third hour of the day, Jesus was stripped naked and they nailed him to a tree. And Pastor Sam Storms helps us see what cannot be seen 
about this awful deed. He says, worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross. Why does Paul refer to the cross as foolishness? Not because the concept or the practice of crucifixion was intellectually incoherent or illogical like 2 plus 2 equals 5. Rather, the message of salvation through faith in a crucified Savior was deemed foolishness because the cross was itself the embodiment and the emblem of the most hideous of human obscenities. The cross was a symbol of reproach, degradation, humiliation, and disgust. It was aesthetically repugnant. In a word, he says, the cross was obscene. And so as Jesus hangs there in in physical and spiritual agony, we have heard him together. We've been reflecting on him speaking three words of mercy and care to those around him. He spoke a word of forgiveness even to the people who nailed him there. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He spoke a word of salvation even to the criminal who was hanging there with him when he said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He spoke a word of care and provision for his mother who faithfully followed him there only to watch her son die. When he said, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple with her, Behold your mother. And now, as one writer put it, time slows in the story and hours begin to be counted. These first three merciful words, words of love that were spoken on the cross, were likely spoken during the first three hours of the crucifixion. That is between nine o'clock in the morning and noon on that day. But then we read that at the sixth hour of that day, at noon on that Friday, in Matthew 27, verse 45, we read that there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. So at noon, the land turned dark. And darkness is a symbol that's often associated with the judgment of God. Um, For instance, the ninth plague on the land of Egypt. It was a plague of darkness that came as an expression of God's judgment. And it came just before that horrible 10th plague, but it also came just before the rescuing sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And what follows are three hours of eerie darkness and three hours of troubling silence as from noon to three o'clock on that Friday afternoon, Jesus does not speak. Three o'clock. It was the time each day when the sacrifice lamb was brought to the temple to be offered for the sins of the people. Three o'clock was the time when Jesus speaks again and he utters the fourth of his seven words from the cross. And before we read these words, I want you to know that these two, like the words that he's already spoken, are words of love. They are spoken in the most profound of languages. And I'm not talking about Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew, but they are spoken in the language of sorrow and suffering on behalf of another. And so we read, about the ninth hour, three o'clock on that Good Friday, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening here? The sky has turned black. And Jesus breaks the silence with this heart-wrenching cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Professor Dale Bruner writes this. He says, I have been told that the closest experience to hell on earth is to be abandoned by someone you thought loved you. Divorce, desertion, rejection. And on this day, he says, Jesus knew this hell. But honestly, these are troubling words, aren't they? That a father should forsake his son. So troubling, in fact, that there are a number of of Bible teachers and scholars who've come to understand these words quite differently. In fact, they ascribe to them an almost opposite meaning from what they are traditionally read. Listen to writer Albert Shee. Dr. She writes this way. He says, for me, what's so most troubling about the unju- is not the unjust trial, how the crowd turns against Jesus, or how his disciples abandon him. The most troubling part is one line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, this line horrifies me. It calls into question the very nature of God. Is God the kind of God that turns his back on his son? Does God abandon those who cry out to him? How could God forsake the perfect God-man, the only one who's ever served him perfectly? Because if Jesus was truly forsaken by God, what's preventing God from forsaking any of us? How could we ever trust him to be good? He goes on and says, one of the major objections that today's new atheists have about Christianity is that the Christian God is not worth believing in. They argue that Christianity is a primitive backwards religion of punitive bloodlust, of a father who kills his own son. The cross is divine child abuse, they say. Fathers should love their children, not abandon them, not torture them, not kill them. If the Christian God forsakes his own child, how could he be worthy of worship? We don't respect human child abusers. Why would we believe in a God who forsakes his own perfect son? So Dr. Shi and an increasingly number of others reinterpret Jesus' words to mean, in effect, the exact opposite of the way they are commonly understood. They believe that Jesus here is asserting that he is in fact not forsaken by the Father. Listen to his, how he explains it. He said, here's the key biblical insight that changed everything for me in how I read this passage. It's a simple historical fact about how Israelites cited their scriptures. They didn't identify passage by chapter numbers or verse numbers. Verse numbers weren't invented yet. Their scriptures didn't have little numbers in the text. So how they referenced a passage was to quote it, especially the first line. So the book of Genesis in Hebrew is not called Genesis, it's called In the Beginning. Exodus is called Names. We similarly evoke a larger body of work with just a line of allusion in our language. For instance, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So the idea that he is putting forward and others with him is that when Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 on the cross, which reads like this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He is really pointing us towards the whole message of the psalm and the way it ends in verse 24, or near the end in verse 24, where it says that he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So Dr. She continues, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's really saying, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. So, is Jesus saying, I have been forsaken by God, he says? No. He's declaring, Psalm 22, pay attention. This psalm, this messianic psalm applies to me. Do you see it? Do you see the uncanny way my death is fulfilling this psalm? Jesus is not saying that God has forsaken him. He's declaring the opposite. He's saying that God is with him, even in this time of seeming abandonment. That God will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. And so as I've studied and meditated on this passage and read this, this perspective, it's been uh, helpful in many ways, but I want to suggest this morning that this is not the best way for us to think about Jesus' words that he is saying on the cross in this saying. I think we should understand that in some mysterious, deeply troubling sense, what we sing in our hymn is true that the father did actually turn his face away from his only son here on the cross. Let me explain why I think we need to believe that. First, um, it is not always the case in Jesus' teaching or in the New Testament that when someone refers to a passage in the Old Testament, they're always referring to the whole passage. Sometimes they're just referring to that verse, and there are instances where Jesus intentionally limits his citation so as not to bring the fullness of the passage to bear. Um, with this kind of thinking, it would be nigh on to impossible to ever just quote a verse without imbuing the entire passage at the same time. Second, it seems really unclear to me to quote a verse whose clearest meaning is the exact opposite of what you intend. Especially when you think about the fact that there were Romans, pagans, around the cross, listening to Jesus' words, listening to this cry to the Father. And they would have no idea about this kind of uh, secret handshake for figuring out what this saying means. Um, the Gospel of Mark, which is in all likelihood, oriented towards non-Jews, Gentiles. Um, it includes this saying of Jesus, and it offers no explanation so that his readers would have no idea that Jesus is referring to the broader and ultimate meaning of that psalm. But perhaps most significantly for me, there are other scriptures, I think, that teach explicitly that Jesus in bearing our sin on the cross, bore fully the penalty of that sin for us. And that did affect, on those dark hours of the cross, his relationship with his Father. For instance, Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now there's a scholar from the last century. His name is A.W. Pink. 
And he says this. He says, the curse is alienation from God. This is apparent from the words which Christ will yet speak to those that shall stand on his left hand in the day of his power. Depart from me, you cursed, he will say in Matthew 25. The curse, he says, is exile from the presence and glory of God. In a sense, to be cursed is the opposite of being blessed. Only makes sense, right? So think with me about one of the great blessings of the Old Testament. Sometimes Daniel will use it at the close of our service from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord give up his lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, Dr. R.C. Sproul helps us see what it means to be cursed by God when he reworks the text from blessing to curse with these sobering words. He says it would go this way. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. So if we seek to explain away Christ's forsakenness, we would also have to explain away his cursedness. Um, And better, I think, to let this hard teaching stand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cursed and forsaken by his Father there on the cross. And so let me assure you this morning, in this understanding of this passage, we are in the best of company. This perspective, this teaching is held by people like John Stott, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Ryle, Calvin, Luther, Edwards, Barth, Piper, Sproul, Keller, many, many, many more. It is far and away the prevailing perspective. And today I'd like to hear, for you to hear from the voices of some of those men and women who teach this far better than I, who think better and are more eloquent than I am. So I will quote from more of them today than I typically would in a, in a morning's sermon like this. But we're going to answer some important questions about this fourth word of Jesus from the cross that's called the word of abandonment. We want to answer questions like, what does that mean that he was forsaken? Why was he forsaken? And what does it mean for me that he was forsaken? So first, what does it mean that he was forsaken? And it may be helpful to explain what it doesn't mean. And Pastor John MacArthur helps us. He says, when Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one of nature, essence, or substance. Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. He did not cease to be the Son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. But Jesus did for a while cease to know the intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly Father just as a disobedient child ceases for a while to have intimate, normal, loving fellowship with his human father. So it's possible then 
that there is a separation in the experience of relationship in the Trinity without violating the essential essence of the Trinity. Jesus did not cease to be God on the cross. He did not cease to be the Son on the cross. And of course, um, that was a grossly understated way of what happened to compare it to when a son errs, and that affects his relationship with the Father. But it gives us some sense about how that could happen without fully breaking relationship. Um, But Dr. R.C. Sproul, again, uses provocative language that helps us grasp more fully the significance of this when he writes about Jesus becoming a curse for us. And he writes this. He says, After Jesus became the scapegoat and the Father had imputed to him every sin of every one of his people, the most intense, dense concentration of evil ever experienced on this planet was exhibited, and Jesus was at that point the ultimate obscenity. He says, so what happened? He says, God is too holy to look at sin. He could not bear to look at that concentrated, monumental condensation of evil. So he averted his eyes from his son, and the light of his countenance was turned off, And all blessedness was removed from his son whom he loved. And in its place was the full measure of the divine curse. It was as if there was a cry from heaven, as if Jesus heard the words, God damn you. Because that's what it meant to be cursed and under the anathema of the Father. What does it mean? That's what it means. He bore our sins and their great penalty of being cursed and forsaken by God himself. That's what it means. Why did it happen? Why did he have to be forsaken? And it's because he was bearing our sin and its penalty. Peter writes and says, That Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Isaiah writes that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Paul writes that it was for our sake that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And Isaiah again explains it saying, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And Jesus took all of this upon himself. Stu Epperson writes that there's no greater pain that's ever been experienced on any level than the hell of Christ suffering in this moment. But why? Because he carried all of that pain, sin, guilt, and shame in that moment. Yet on a far deeper level, he was forsaken and punished for us to reconcile us to God. And then he cites Tim Keller, who says, If after a service some Sunday, one of the members of my church comes to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again. He said, I'd feel pretty bad. But if today my wife comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that is immeasurably worse. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And he says, but this forsakenness, 
This loss was between the father and the son who had loved each other from all eternity. Jesus was experiencing judgment day for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. The answer is, he was forsaken for you and for me. Jesus was forsaken for us. He was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be forsaken. The judgment that should have fallen on us instead fell on Jesus. Now some are deeply troubled that the father would forsake his son. Asking if the father turns away from his own son in his hour of greatest need, what hope could we ever have? And I want to say, exactly, exactly, if we bear our own sin, we have no hope. We will be forsaken by the Father. But because Jesus bore our sin and its full penalty, including being forsaken and cursed by the Father, we need not be Poet Elizabeth Browning skillfully puts it this way. She says, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation. He was forsaken that we should never have to utter this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? It means this. It means you will never be forsaken. You who trust and hope in Christ, you will never be forsaken forsaken. Um, there's a book written by a medical doctor. His name is uh, Dr. Gawande, and he describes the story of a man named Bill Thomas. Um, Bill was a man in the 1990s, started working at the metal, as a medical director of a nursing home in New Berlin, New York. He's only 31 years old. He's not worked with in elder care very much, and with his newcomer's eyes, he is shocked by what he called the three plagues of nursing home existence. Boredom, Loneliness and helplessness. We might say being forsaken. And his plan to remedy that was simple. Start bringing in gardens and children and pets. Lots of pets. And so he has this conversation with the staff to try to get them to sign on to this plan. He says um, he got them all ready to allow him to bring in some, so a lot of plants. And he says, how about a dog? And uh, they said, there are safety code issues but maybe we could do it. He said, okay, then let's try two dogs. And they said, it's against the code. And he said, well, let's just put it down anyway. And so he's, he's feeling like he's on a roll. He says, how about cats? They said, you want dogs and cats? But he was persuasive and they agreed. Perfect, he said. And we need the sound of life about this place. You know what would be best? The sounds of birds singing. He said, let's put down a hundred birds. So they said, a hundred birds in this place, 
You must be out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house that has two dogs, four cats, and a hundred birds? And he says, no, but wouldn't it be worth trying? And so he wrote them down, and they ordered the birds. And the hundred parakeets all arrived on the same day before the bird cages had come. So the delivery man released the birds into the nursing home's beauty salon. And the results were extraordinary. The number of prescriptions halved, especially a particular reduction in the use of psychotropic drugs. Mortality fell 15%. This was the starting point for a larger program named, biblically appropriately, the Eden Alternative. And why was the Eden Alternative so successful? Dr. Gawande concludes, in part, we need a sense of belonging. We have an innate desire to be a part of something larger than ourselves. When we are connected to life and to each other, we thrive. When we are disconnected, when we are forsaken, we die. And Jesus, disconnected and forsaken from the Father, under the penalty of the sins of the world, died on that cross at the ninth hour on that Good Friday afternoon. He was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be ever have to be. Professor Dan Wallace responds to Dr. Shee's question that says, if Jesus was truly forsaken by God, what's preventing God from forsaking any of us? How could we ever trust him to be good? And Dan Wallace says, Paul gives the decisive answer in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says it is precisely because Jesus has suffered in our place that God is now free to give us all things to do good to us at all times. And this morning we could say it is precisely because Jesus was forsaken that we will never be. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? It means you will never be forsaken. It means you are deeply loved by the Father. You are deeply loved by the Father and by the Son. There's another scholar who writes and he says, if we simply remember that this separation of the father and son was entered into by all three divine persons out of love for humankind and for one another, then as paradoxical as it might sound, the anguished separation of the father and the son on the cross can be seen as the quintessential expression of the loving unity of the father and the son. Indeed, the unsurpassable cost of this divine separation expresses the unsurpassable perfection of the love of this divine union and of the love of the Father for us. So, we ought to put an end to this divine child abuse idea. We need to put it to death so that we can put it to death for our friends who struggle with it. Right? Imagine with me a father and his grown son realize that there's a stadium full of people 
who've been taken hostage by terrorists. And so together, the father and his son concoct a plan where it's the only plan they can conceive, but they agree on it together. The son is to go into the arena, into the room where the terrorists are holed up with an explosive device strapped to his body, and there the father will push the button and blow up the, the terrorists, and his son will die, but the stadium full of people will be spared. Now, we would not call that child abuse. We would call that sacrifice. We might even call it love. What Jesus endured on the cross was an act of sacrificial love for you. What he endured is beyond words. And if there's anybody that could find a way to put words to stuff, it was 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. The guy was like a fount of words. But he struggled to try to describe this. And he articulated it this way. He says, behind Jesus, the anguish behind Jesus Christ, he says, I do not think that the records of time or even eternity can contain a sentence more full of anguish. Here you may look as into a vast abyss. And though you strain your eyes and gaze till sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. It is measureless unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. John writes, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Huge word propitiation. It means the idea of satisfying or appeasing the wrath of God. Um, So what does this mean for you? It means that Christ bore this suffering because you are deeply, deeply loved. What does it mean? It means God can be trusted. Even here we see, by the example of Jesus, by his own words, that God is still to be trusted. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cries out to God when he cannot be seen, even when he feels wholly forsaken. And he says of God, he is still my God. Professor Dale Bruner says the point here is this. The God whose presence Jesus does not feel, Jesus addresses The God whom Jesus does not experience, Jesus invokes. And Jesus, right here, better than perhaps anywhere else, teaches us exactly what faith is at its deepest level. It is believing God even when we do not feel him. If Jesus had said, my people, my people, why has God abandoned me? We could believe that at the very end, Jesus really did give up on God and did despair. Then God would have to be very questionable to us in our crises too. But when Jesus asked God about God's absence, when Jesus prayed, my God, why did you abandon me? Jesus may have taught faith better than any other story in the gospel. Real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God is not there. What does this mean? It means that God can be trusted even when you don't feel like he's there, even when your suffering is great even when your disappointment is huge, 
even when you feel forsaken, Jesus shows us the Father can be trusted. And so we come to the Lord's table today as God's people to cherish this, to remember this, to meditate, to reflect, to worship the God who loves us so. And as we come to the table, I'd like, I'd like to remind you of how to best negotiate this room. Let's use these two aisles for returning to our seats and the center aisle and the wall aisles to approach the table. Um, that'll keep us from any head-on collisions during the Lord's Supper. But let me, um, let me lead us with this reflection on Jesus' sacrifice. Here's the one who says he cares for others. One who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe that he saves others when he can't even get off that bloody cross? Let him save himself. Let him come down now, savage, jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others as the king of grace. Draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone, dejected, weeps the bitterest tears instead of me. All the mockers cry, he has lost his trust, he's defeated by hypocrisy, but with faith's resolve, Jesus knows he must do God's will and swallow death for me. Would you pray with me as we approach the table? Jesus, now... Um, Help us love you more. Help us grasp, just in a small way, the depth of your sorrow and suffering for us, what you bore when you took our sins. And so Jesus coming to this table for us, it's remembering, it's honoring, it's obeying, it's worshiping, it is loving you back. And oh Jesus, we, we confess our love for you as we come to this table now and we remember together that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me.